You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, if you were to fly to the British Museum in London, you could find on display a massive, massive piece of stone that has been carved known as the Lachish Relief, which I believe we have a picture of, or you can see part of it on our back screen. The Lachish Relief is a giant display that shows the conquest of a king named Sennacherib. And there's an inscription with this, this relief, which came from almost 3,000 years ago. And archaeologists discovered it. They discovered it in what we call Iraq, but in its day was known as Nineveh. And there in Nineveh, there once stood this giant temple. And in that temple, King Sennacherib made this giant relief recording all of his conquests. And there's one particular highlight of this known as the Lachish uh, relief. And it says the inscription in this, this relief says, Sennacherib, king of the universe, king of Assyria, sits on a throne and the spoils of Lachish are paraded before him. Now, if you knew your biblical geography, which I didn't, I had to look up, Lachish was a city in Judah. It was like the second most city in Judah, right? Like it would be like the Bristol to the Nashville. Just kidding. We know it's like Memphis and then Knoxville, then Bristol. But in Judah, it would have been Lachish and then the most important city, Jerusalem. And so we see on this record that Sennacherib invaded a city of Judah and he wiped them out. Now, if you've been following with us in the story of Hezekiah, Hezekiah was king during this time. And in the last few weeks, as we've talked about Hezekiah's story, we've seen all of the amazing and obedient things that Hezekiah did. Even though the kings before him were often evil and corrupt, Hezekiah tried to bring the nation of Judah back to obedience to God. And so he restored the temple. He started the the sacrificial system. Once again, he tore down all the idols to false gods. And then last week, we looked at how he reinstituted the Sabbath feast and try to bring people back to obedience, which is a strange thing as we go through this, because if you're reading this, you might expect, like with all of his obedience, you might expect the next line to say something like, Hezekiah was rewarded for his obedience, and so he had rest from all of his enemies, and he excelled in everything that he put his hands to. But instead, we read in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 1, after these things... And these things being the restoration of the temple, the tearing down of the idols, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities. Now, wasn't Hezekiah obedient? Shouldn't his obedience be rewarded? Doesn't God love Hezekiah? Doesn't God support those who who obey him? What we have to realize is, yeah, God loved Hezekiah. God was supporting Hezekiah, but Hezekiah had an enemy, the enemy of Assyria, particularly Sennacherib, the king at that time. Hezekiah had an enemy, and so do we. And that's the lens I want to look at this story this morning, is understanding that we, just like Hezekiah, have an enemy. Our enemy isn't like maybe another nation that we're talking about. We're not talking like the other political party. Our enemy is not Larry from accounting. The Bible tells us our enemy is different. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul the Apostle reminds us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul is telling us our enemy isn't people, our enemy isn't nations, our real enemy 
The one we need to be concerned about is Satan. The being that we see all throughout scripture from the Garden of Eden all the way to the end, Satan or the devil in Hebrew, it's often the accuser. We see it all throughout scripture and we are told that that is our enemy. We have an enemy. And so just like Hezekiah, we're gonna experience trials and suffering. Jesus told us in this world, you will have trouble. If, if there is one like warning, if there's two actually, two themes that we are told to, to focus on, two warnings throughout the entire New Testament, like Matthew through Revelation, almost every book reminds us of two things, to try and avoid sexual immorality and to expect suffering. Why? Because we have an enemy. Not because God doesn't love us, not because God doesn't support us, but because we have an enemy and that enemy is the spiritual forces of evil. And so this might cause for some people like that, that don't understand this, this might cause sort of a crisis of faith. If all of a sudden we meet this trial, we're like, but, but I thought God loved me. Well, yeah, God loves you. Well, why, does, why do good things happen to bad people? Well, because, or wait, why do the other way? You know what I mean? Why do bad things happen to good people? Because good people still have an enemy, right? And so we have to understand that when you have an enemy, you will be attacked, which that's sort of the, the thing we're looking at. The major theme that this, this passage of scripture is gonna come under this morning is the truth that when you have an enemy, you will be attacked. And we know we have an enemy. So when you have an enemy, you will be attacked. But often, here's what I see, is when people face these attacks, they start asking questions like, but doesn't God love me? Why am I facing this struggle? Where's this trial in my life? Should I have been freed from temptation by now? Is my salvation not real? And people fall into this trap of thinking, if I do good, good will happen to me. And so then when bad happens to me, they think, well, then everything in the Bible is not true. But the Bible never said, if you do good, good will happen to you. That's karma. That's karma. The, the Buddhist religion says, hey, do good and good will happen to you. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that we have an enemy. And when you have an enemy, you will be attacked. And so don't be mistaken. Don't, don't mistake these problems that you see for not having received salvation for not having the promise of eternity that comes later after death. Don't be mistaken. Your war is won, but the battle is not done. Did you guys hear that one? Because when a pastor rhymes, you're supposed to like give a uh-huh, amen, preach it. So let's say it again. Your war is won, but the battle is not done. There we go. All right. Had to fish for it, but we're together. All right. So how do we be ready for these attacks? If we know we have an enemy and attacks are gonna come, how can we be prepped for this? Let's look at what Hezekiah does. And with this, we're gonna lay out the tactics of the enemy. We're gonna see the way the enemy, Hezekiah's enemy attacked him, but also the way our spiritual enemy, how Satan is gonna attack us. And here's the problem. You can't see them, okay? So the projector just died out on us this morning. It's been quite a morning. So if you uh, are a note taker, you gotta listen and you can write it down. You flip over that compass, you got room for notes, you can write these down. But here's what happens. Here's the tactics. That's what you're missing, the tactics of our enemy. 2 Kings 18, 17 says that the king of Assyria, that's Sennacherib, sent the Tartan, the Rab Saris, the Rab Shakah, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the washer's field. 
And so Hezekiah sends out his men to receive this messenger from the, the enemy king. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that the mere words and strategy of power are power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed or a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? In Jerusalem? That last part we know to just be a blatant lie, right? He's trying to add in confusion to them, saying, hey, all these altars that Hezekiah tore down, wasn't that the altar to your God? How are you going to worship him now? But we know those were altars to false gods. Those were idols. And so he's starting to just feed them lies. And so we go down a little bit. Hezekiah's, uh, it says this in verse 26. It says, then Elkaim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shibna, the son of Joah. There's a lot of fun names and words in this one. I think that's why I got to preach this one and not Matt. He didn't want to have to pronounce these. Uh, but then these are Hezekiah's dudes. And, and they say to the Rabshakeh, they say, please speak to us, your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? I'm glad I got this passage because I got to read that one right there. <laughs> but they're up there in, in the, the, the earshot of all the people of Judah, the men on the wall that have to guard Judah, the men that are, are ready to face this enemy, and they're speaking in the language of the people of Judah. And so Hezekiah's guys are like, hey, 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 talk to us in Aramaic. We can understand. They don't want to hear the people to hear these lies. But right here we see the first tactic that the enemy will often use against us. The enemy will lie to you in your language. He's going to bring you lies in the language that you speak. He knows what gets you, right? Satan knows What's going to get under your skin? Satan knows what's going to distract you. Satan knows what's going to freak you out, what is going to bring you temptation. Satan understands his enemy, and that is us, his enemy. He wants to shut us down. And so he's going to tell us lies in our language. He's going to bring that temptation that he knows is exactly what we are going to struggle with and try and overwhelm us with that and just throw all of these lies at us. What are his lies? We've got to keep looking. Verse 31, it says, they say, don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honeys that you may live and not die. So he starts telling them all of these things, which we're suspicious. We know on this side of it probably lies, right? Hey, it's going to be great for you. You're just going to be a new land that's really similar to your own. But in this land, you can live and not die. And you're going to have a land flowing with milk and honey, which sounds very familiar to the promise God gave to Israel and Judah before they came into the promised land that they now occupy. And so the second tactic of the enemy that we see is that he's going to give us lies in our language, but then he's going to pose as our ally. I'm your buddy. Listen to me. Like, you don't want to, you're, you're trusting in that, that God of yours? Like, oh, he doesn't have your best interest in mind. Like, listen to me. I, I, I know what you need. 
I know your, your needs, your wants. Like, if you follow God, like, there's going to be trouble. But listen to me, I, I've got your best interest in mind. Now, why does the enemy want to pose as our ally? Let's keep reading verse 33. He says, has any of the gods and the nations ever delivered this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvavimim and Hina and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? These are all places that, that Assyria had recently attacked, that Sennacherib had overthrown. And he said, who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? The enemy is very aware of how Judah worships, that they claim Yahweh is their God. But then he's saying, all these other places, they had gods too. You think your God's going to rescue you like their God's rescued them? No way. The reason the enemy wants to tell us lies in our language and pretend to be our friend is because he wants to make us doubt God. That's the third tactic of our enemy is that he will cast doubt on God. He'll try and make you doubt your own faith. He'll try and make you doubt your own creator. He'll try and make you doubt the promises of God. Does God really love you? If you're facing this temptation and this battle, where, where is God in it? Do you really have salvation and believe him? Do you really love God if this is happening to you? Does any of this seem familiar? As we look back through scripture and see the other times we've seen the enemy, the accuser, Satan, appear in the Bible, I mean, it's the same story over and over and over again. These tactics that Sennacherib is using against Hezekiah are the exact same ones that the serpent used in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of the fruit of this vine? Come on, if you eat that, like God knows you're going to be made like him. You're going to have your eyes opened. Does God really want the best for you? If he wanted the best for you, he'd want you to, to have that. He, he's afraid that you're going to be like him. The serpent spoke the language of Adam and Eve, right? Like literally, snakes don't usually talk language, but this one did. He, he told them that, that um, he was their ally, right? Like he posed himself like, hey, trust me, I, I know, look how wise I am. And he did all of this because he wanted them to doubt God, which ultimately they did. And then they gave in to the attack of the enemy. And now we have rebellion and sin and death and separation from God kicked out of the Garden of Eden. The same tactics the enemy used in the Garden of Eden, he uses against us today. Say, does God really have the best for you in mind? Like, really? He only wants you to have like one spouse in life, only one person you can sleep with for your whole life. Like, imagine how much more life there could be, how much happier you'd be with many partners, right? Come on, God's boundaries for you. God's keeping you away from happiness. God's keeping you away from a real life that you could live. You really think like that money is not the thing that you should be giving to others? No, you're gonna find life in greed. You're gonna find life in fulfillment and stuff. Just take this fruit, just eat it. Trust me, I'm your buddy. And in the midst of all of those lies, we might begin to doubt our faith in God. We might begin to doubt and listen to the world saying, yeah, there's, there's a better way. You can live any way you want to. You shouldn't have boundaries on yourself. If it makes you feel good, do it. Those are all the lies of the enemy. So then how are we supposed to respond? We know the tactics of our enemy. Now we need strategies to stand. And I'm really glad that we have the left hand of this board or your left, my right. I don't know what it is because this is the more important part. Like, hopefully you can remember the tactics of the enemy. I hope you can identify those this week. But we really need to know the strategies to stand up against these attacks. So first, let's look at what Hezekiah did. When he heard word that Sennacherib is coming to Judah, here's how he prepped. We gotta flip over to 2 Chronicles to see this part. 2 Chronicles 13 also tells the same story, or 32 also tells the same story. Verse two says, 
When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside of the city. And they helped him. And a great many people were gathered and they all stopped up the springs and the brook that flowed through the land saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? This is a great piece of strategy. He knows that the enemy is coming. They had these springs that were outside of the city that would flow in and provide water to the whole city. But if the, the king of Assyria comes and surrounds their city, they're gonna be able to drink that water. They're possibly gonna be able to block off that water to the people of Judah. And so he's saying, hey, why should we feed their army? Let's make them struggle. So they blocked up these springs. They blocked up the water outside of their, their place so that when Sennacherib came, he wouldn't find much water, which is a great tactic. We have to know in order to stand against the enemy, we need, we need to know not to feed our enemy, which is exactly what Hezekiah is doing. He's saying, man, let's not feed Sennacherib because he'll get stronger. We see this today in the conflict over in the Ukraine with Russia. Many, many countries have put sanctions on Russia. They're stopping trade with Russia because they don't want to strengthen the enemy, right? And so we see this played out with Hezekiah. We cannot feed our enemy. It was a great tactic for Hezekiah. It's the same for us. We cannot feed our enemy. So what that may look like is if you have struggled with alcohol in your past, maybe the bar is not the best place for you to go to. If you've battled alcohol addiction, the smells and the sounds are just gonna be a trigger to make you wanna drink and fall back into that addiction. You can't feed the enemy. If you like, the, I think it's like 60% of men and 40% of women, if you struggle with pornography in life, then maybe you need to be careful of what TV shows or movies you watch, what apps you allow to have on your phone because these things can become triggers for you. And it'll just feed your enemy until that temptation grows into sin and disaster. If you struggle with self-control when it comes to eating, maybe Shoney's is not the best restaurant for you, right? Because they have that amazing buffet and where many meals have an ending point, not Shoney's, they got to just go back to the buffet, right? I know for me personally, when the casino comes to town, it may not be the best place for me because though I've never had a gambling problem in my life, I had a really serious issue with Tetris for quite some time. And I just, games get me and I couldn't quit playing till finally I had to delete it off my phone. And so I know if there were money at stake, that'd be a bad situation for me. We can't feed the enemy. We have to be careful of what we allow the enemy to grow or how we allow the enemy to grow in our life. James describes this in chapter one, verses 14 through 15 in the New Testament. He says, each person is tempted, not sinned. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Desires lead to this temptation. And if we start feeding those desires more and more and more, that temptation gets larger and larger and larger until we give into it and then sin is born. And we know that sin leads to death and destruction. So we need to be careful that we do not feed our enemy by feeding temptation, by letting these desires grow in our lives. So don't feed your enemy. So Hezekiah, he stops up these wells outside of, outside of Jerusalem. But then archaeologists have discovered that there are these huge tunnels dug from the wells to the inside of the city. An amazing feat, like even today by our technology, but Hezekiah was able to pull this off with men working with tools by hand and in a quick manner, knowing that the enemy was on its way. So he stopped up the wells to, to keep Sennacherib's men from drinking water, from, from feeding the enemy. And then verse, uh, 2 Kings 19, verse 1 through 2 says this. 
uh, he, or I kind of skipped the part. Hezekiah's men, they deliver this message. So the guys come up on the wall, right? They're like, hey, tell all this to Hezekiah. So his men take the message back to Hezekiah. And it says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord, the temple. And he sent Elkiam, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary and the senior, of the senior priest, covered, all covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. This is not just any Isaiah. This is the Isaiah, the great prophet who has the whole book in the Old Testament. In fact, if you wanted to, you could flip over to Isaiah uh, chapter 36 and 37. And it is almost word for word of the account in 2 Kings 18 and 19 where we see it kind of from the prophet's perspective, or maybe one copied it from the other, but he calls Isaiah. And he says, Isaiah, you got to inquire of the Lord for us. We are in trouble. Here's another strategy for us. We have to enlist real allies. We've got to call upon other people to help us fight our battle. And Hezekiah calls upon Isaiah because he knows Isaiah is a man of the Lord. And he's seen him be trustworthy. Even when it is bad news, he knows Isaiah is going to give it because he watched how the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And the whole time Isaiah was telling them, this is going to happen. God is sending enemies against you because you've disobeyed him. And Israel still didn't listen. But Isaiah kept giving that message that was not a popular message. So now Hezekiah knows, like, this guy has heard from the Lord. He was right about that thing in Israel. And also he stood up to say it all the time. He is a good friend. So this is who Hezekiah enlists. Isaiah is like that friend that you can ask, I mean, does this look okay on me? And they'll be honest, right? They'll be like, no, it doesn't. Like, that's too tight or it's too loose. Uh, Isaiah was the friend to Hezekiah that would say like, hey, that person you're dating, they're trash. When everybody else is like, oh, nice personality. We like them, right? We need those people in our lives that are friends that we know we can trust even to give us the bad news. But more than that, friends that we know are loyal to God, that are obedient to God. We see the spirit acting in their lives. So Hezekiah enlists Isaiah. Where can we find good allies in life? Where can we find people that we know are following the Lord and will be familiar with the same struggles and, and war that we are fighting? Small group. Small group. Uh, me being over the small groups of discovery, I'd love to see more and more people involved in small groups so that you can find that kind of ally in the battles that you're going to face. My name for my bracket in the NCA discovery, like, you know, bracket tournament we got is join a small group. And you're going to notice that it busted the first game Kentucky lost because I had them going all the way, baby, and they're gone. You know, so join a small group doesn't look great on that. But in this, join a small group. This is where we're going to find allies. This is where we're going to find people to support us and pray with us. And so Isaiah prays for Hezekiah. He prays for Judah and he sends a message back. He says, don't worry, they're going to withdraw the siege. They're going to hear a rumor that other stuff is happening. And sure enough, that happens. They withdraw, but it's only for a time. And then they come back again. Later, Sennacherib sends another letter to Hezekiah. He surrounded the city again. And he says, look, I've laid waste to all these other nations. You're next, Hezekiah. Like the same battle is still happening. And 2 Kings 19, 14 tells us that Hezekiah received that letter, a second letter from the hands of the messengers. And he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. So he prays about it and he prays this beautiful prayer that we don't have time to cover it here. But this week, I just that would be your homework is read this story in its entirety and hear the way that Hezekiah goes before God and prays to him. Then in verse 19, he says this. He says, so now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. 
So our last strategy, strategy to stand against the enemy is to lay our battle before the Lord, to take that problem, that temptation, that issue, that discouragement, whatever it is we are dealing with and lay it before the Lord and say, God, here's my problem. Only you can rescue me. And when you rescue me, it'll be a testimony to you so that others can know what's happened in my life, that you are the only real God. That not the enemy, that not the gods that our world worships God, but you are the only real God. We gotta lay it before the Lord. This, all this sermon has come for me in a time, and I've experienced many of these things and, and struggled to try and put these practices in place in my own life. Many of you know, uh, over Christmas, like from Christmas through the middle of January, I had significant hearing loss in my right ear. I had an ear infection that left me like mostly deaf in my right ear, and it was the worst. And so all throughout Christmas, I was struggling with this, and I found out from a doctor that it was possible that my hearing might not return. And the only procedure for this was injections in my ear hole, which is as awful as it sounds, and I paid for it, right? Like I paid the money to stick me with needles in my ear. But in this time, it's just very much a struggle because with hearing loss also comes just this noise. I was dealing with this noise all the time in my head that I could not escape. And I thought it was gonna drive me insane. I mean, there'd be fluctuation and some days were better and some days were worse. And there was one particular day where it was so bad that I thought I was gonna go insane. I mean, I really thought like, if I have to deal with this my whole life, I'll have to be committed to some type of institution. I cannot live with this. There was one particular day, it was a Thursday morning. I was really tired and I just was struggling to focus. The noise was getting louder and louder. I couldn't do anything to escape it. And I found myself, I just left, I was in the church office. I found myself, I, I tried to lay down. I have a couch in there, secret, and sometimes a nap on it. I was like, I, maybe I can sleep this one out. It didn't work. I couldn't sleep because it was too loud in my head. So I was like, I need to pray. I couldn't pray because I couldn't find internal silence to pray. And so I just was almost feeling frantic. I remember walking out of the office, finding myself in the field behind the church, just sobbing. Because I thought, I can't live this way. But this whole time, I was getting texts from friends and family saying they were praying for me. And what I later found out is that my wife had called on many of our friends and family to have a day of fasting and prayer before my last injection, the 24 hours before my last treatment. And so when I couldn't pray for myself, I had allies praying for me. And I am so happy to say that my hearing is back. That, that I'm healed of that, that I've had great hearing. It's awesome, it's incredible. I mean, I'm nervous it'll happen again, but it seems that I'm healed from that. But through that process, I learned that I just had to lay this problem out before the Lord. I needed good allies. I need to be careful in my life of other things because let me tell you, when you're looking for something to distract you from noise, like that can be temptation road. And so I knew I gotta be on my best game. I gotta not feed my enemy. I can't give in to little temptations or let them grow because I'll fall easy while I'm battling this other thing. And luckily I had allies in my life praying for me, my small group, my family, my wife. But then I learned I just had to lay it before the Lord and I finally was able to get to a place where I just said, God, heal me or not, I will worship you. Knowing that even if God did heal me of this earthly trouble, it's like fifth or sixth on the list of the greatest things he's done for me right? Because he sent his son to die for me. He's given me salvation. I may face struggles now, but one day I get to be in eternity with him. He's given me an incredible family. He's given me so many blessings. So yeah, I have some battles, but I can still worship him. If we were to go to the Museum of Chicago, in the Museum of Chicago, there's a clay prism. 
It's one of the prisms of Sennacherib. On this are all of the, the etchings of all of his great conquests, cities that he laid siege to, cities that he overthrew and conquered. Of all the cities on this prism that are recorded in history that Sennacherib was able to conquer, there is one city that shows up that was under siege but was never conquered by Sennacherib. And that's Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem where Hezekiah was king. And so we see that ultimately God delivered Hezekiah. Sennacherib withdraws. It says that there was an angel of the Lord sent against them and 185,000 of the Assyrian men were killed just overnight. No explanation. They walk out to the battlefield the next day. They're all dead. Historians try and figure this out. They're like, we think it was a plague. And we're like, oh, we know what it is. It was God took care of Hezekiah's battle. And so we get this verse in 2 Chronicles 32, 8 from this prayer from Isaiah saying with him, or no, this is actually from Hezekiah talking to the people of Judah. And he says with him, with Sennacherib is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. We may have an enemy, but our enemy has an arm of flesh. We have God. We have the arm of the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of him in our lives. And so we can lay our battles before him. We can stand against our enemy knowing that we have the promises of the Father. There may be some lies that we have to push through, but we know that on the other side are the promises of our Father. And so this morning during our communion time, that's where I want our, our minds to be reflected. So we've set up for you to have just a, a lengthy time this morning. There's like three more songs we're gonna be doing. You have plenty of time to have a time of communion. We've got two communion stations set up, one on either side of the stage. We don't have them in the back of the room today. But what we hope is for you to just sort of travel to these stations, take your time, grab communion, take it in the station or take it back to your seat, whatever you want. But what I want you to do in that journey to communion is to reflect on, man, what are the lies of the enemy that I am hearing? What is that curtain of lies that I have to push through to get to the promises of the Father on the other side? How's he trying to distract me? How am I feeding him? What are the things I'm hearing? And then what are the promises I have from God? And so in our communion time, I'd like for you to reflect on that, to push through the lies of the enemy and know that because we have communion, because we can celebrate the death of our Savior on the cross, his body and blood, his body broken, his blood poured out for us, which is what we, we remember during communion, the bread and the juice. Since we have that promise, there's no enemy that can stand between us and God. There's no enemy that can overthrow us because our enemy has an arm of flesh, but we have the arm of God. So I want to invite you to take communion together this morning in that attitude. Let me pray for us as we move. God, we thank you. We thank you that you've provided for us, that you fight our battles for us. God, let us not buy into the lie that because you're with us or we love you that we won't face battles, but let us know that there will be battles even though our war is won. And so God, right now as we move to communion and we reflect upon the cross and the great sacrifice you gave us so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have a God who fights our battles, so that we could have a victory in our war against sin and death. As we move to communion this morning, I pray that you'd help us to silence the lies of the enemy to identify his tactics and to stand against them. We thank you that our enemy is nothing compared to you.
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can move to communion when you're ready.